All right, three, two, one. All right, I'm here with Senator Wakai. He is a state senator in uh, the state of Hawaii. And I want to say thank you for coming on and being a guest. Uh, you didn't have to, and I know you're busy. Um, I believe you were, were you just in session and you guys finished or what happened? Yep, we had a special session last week to override six out of the governor's 26 vetoes. Oh, nice. And we could talk a little bit more about that. But uh, why don't you go ahead and just give a little breakdown about yourself for the people who might not know you? Sure. First of all, thanks, James, for giving me this opportunity. I've been in the legislature going on 20 years. Uh, prior Ooh. to that, yeah, a <laughs> long time. To be honest, back when I was elected in 2002, I never thought I'd be here as long as I, I have. But, uh, and, and you know, a lot of people, when they first get elected, think like, oh, term limits, we got to get these scoundrels out of office quicker rather than later. Yeah. Um, and then you, once you get in, you realize, uh, it doesn't work that fast. That politics is really a marathon. It's not a sprint to the finish. So, for example, it took me over 10 years to get the Aloha Stadium bill passed, right? So it gives you an idea of how, you know, how no matter how illustrious or meritorious an idea is, it takes time to understand the process. It takes time to build relationships to ultimately get to whatever it is that uh, any politician is chasing. So people who have this mindset that somehow in four, six, eight years, you should be able to achieve greatness. Uh, no, that, I, that is actually a foolish uh, thought process. So I've been in politics going on, as I mentioned, 20 years. Prior to that, for 11 years, I was in the television news business. I worked first out of, uh, after I graduated from uh, USC with a journalism and sociology degree and a business minor. I went to Guam. Uh, then I went to this place called Saipan, which is about 100 miles north of Guam. Spent about four years in the Marianas. Came back here, worked for KHON and KHNL, which is now Hawaii News Now, for another seven years. But, you know, the news business was fun. It was exciting. But at the end of the day, it was empty because all I'm doing is talking about what other people are doing. As a reporter, you don't actually have a hand in changing society for the better. And as we know, most of news every day is negative. And I'm a very positive person. And I was tired of telling people how crappy Hawaii was. And yeah. I wanted to do something to change that crappiness and make it uh, better. So it was time for me in 2002 to make the transition from a life in news to a life in politics. Right. And then you were in, uh, you ran for a state house of representatives. In uh, which district was that? Uh, that was, well, I don't know the district number, but it, uh, at that time it encompassed Moanalua and Salt Lake. So now in my Senate capacity, which I uh, got into in 2010, I go from Kalihi all the way to Aloha Stadium. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so with the uh, you're saying it took you 10 years for the Aloha Stadium bill, which is interesting because uh, when I was working for a state representative here, I used to be all four term limits because I... In a sense, it's kind of like you can't really trust the voters to make an educated decision. Um, but that, that's neither here nor there. But um, and my boss at the time told me that that session that I was working for her, she finally got a bill passed to get a library in, in her district, which took 12 years, 12 years. So it kind of opened my eyes that, uh, yeah, these the term limits are a good idea, I think, philosophically. But the reality of it is it takes so long to get these bills through and to build the partnerships and uh, everything that you need to just get something in place, yeah? So, mm -hmm. um, Yeah, and really, the, the term limits are up every two years. At any given time, the people in my district can say, Glenn, I don't agree with you, you're out. And here's new, uh, newly improved politician number, number two. <laughs> so there is no necessity for us to have in law that, okay, at a certain fixed time, you're going to move, move on to something else. So I think that's, that's the folly of people's belief that somehow once you're in, you're always in. 
Yeah. When I, I in this office, I lease the space. I don't own the space. So at any time, the lease can be cut, and somebody else can be sitting in this office. And we should be inviting more zealous uh, conversations and better candidates to enter public service. Yeah. No. And I like I like the way you think like that. Um, I think that's why I've always liked you as a lawmaker because I always appreciate the ones who are more um, people related as opposed to the ones that kind of just close themselves off. Um, and they kind of think that they're just better than even their constituents. And, you know, I won't mention any names or anything, but, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who think that this is a career for them. Yeah. And I don't look at it in that way at all. If I have nothing more to give and I, it's unagreeable to the constituents, it's time for me to go move on and do something else. But there are other people who think that they own their office space here and they're going to die in office, right? The kind of Danny Noe mentality of some people yeah. who are not quite nearly as illustrious as Danny Noe yep. uh, that think that they own this place. Like nobody owns this place. We all serve at the pleasure of the public and it should be an honor to be here. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, before we dig into the stadium, the surfing, um, I was interesting because honestly, I don't surf, but you know, that has a lot of history in Hawaii. Um, I don't know too much about surfing because I suck. <laughs> so uh, how long were you pushing for, it, you have like a task force or, or what is it that you put together for surfing in Hawaii? Well, like you, I'm a land lover. I, mean, <laughs> I can barely swim a hundred yards. Yeah. I don't surf, but I love opportunities. And here is where we have an opportunity, right? Duke Kahanamoku took surfing to the international stage a hundred years ago when he was an Olympian. And he talked about how surfing really is Hawaii's gift to the sports world. And what has happened in a hundred years? Nothing yeah. in Hawaii. But what has happened elsewhere with surfing, you look at what Australia and California have done to glorify, celebrate, even monetize surfing. And here in Hawaii, we just kind of watch that get taken from us. And I'm really trying to realign that mentality, rewrite the entire narrative so that Hawaii is the epicenter of surfing. And I saw the two things were happening. And keep in mind, I started this effort three years ago. I finally was able to get a surf advisory committee within the Hawaii Tourism yeah, Authority. And, uh, but I saw two things on the horizon. One, that surfing later this month is going to be a first-time Olympic e event. Um, that oh, in wow. itself is going to create a huge global interest in surfing. And then the second issue was the, the uh, technological advancements with wave pools. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, the World Surfing League had their first professional surfing event in the middle of a desert in <laughs> Fresno, California, That's because they, they created a surf machine, a Kelly Slater wave pool that makes perfect waves back in and forth. And if you think about that, the fact that we have a surfing event in the middle of a desert means that surfing can get taken to landlocked areas that never even touched the ocean. You can surf in Kansas. You can surf in Switzerland. <laughs> so with technology as well as the surfing in the Olympics, I just saw that there's a huge wave of interest coming. And are we going to position Hawaii to catch that wave or are we going to continue as we have for the past hundred years since Duke Hanamoku to wipe out on glorifying, celebrating, and owning surfing? Yeah, I know. Hawaii should definitely own it. I mean, that's kind of like what everyone you know, at least in some part of their mind when they hear surfing, they th they think of Hawaii, but then you get taken over by, like you're saying, Australia, California, mm -hmm. um, even Brazil, these other areas. So I think that's awesome that you're trying to bring the light back to Hawaii. Because mm -hmm. Hawaii, you know, it always gets overshadowed by so many other countries and, and, and even states with things that kind of like originated here. But um, so it's always good, I feel, that uh, when people are standing up and saying, hey, no, that, you know, Hawaii 
has to be included in this conversation because uh, you guys kind of got that from us. So I like that. Um, yeah, so if you don't mind, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Hawaii, we try to replicate what other places are doing. And I really think we should look at ourselves as to what makes us special and how do we share that with the rest of the world. So going back to surfing, um, it's embarrassing to note that there are six states in America that have competitive high school surfing, and Hawaii is not one of them. New Jersey has competitive high school surfing. I didn't know that. uh, For example, uh, there is no surf museum in Hawaii. There's one in Bells Beach, Australia. There's one in Oceanside, California. Two years ago, California designated surfing as their state's official sport. So you can see how you know other entities are grabbing and, and, and really trying to uh, take advantage of surfing. And here we are sitting in the middle of the Pacific as the you know ground zero, genesis, originator of surfing. And we're looking just at other people having competitive high school surfing. We're seeing them glorify surfing through museums. We're seeing them designate surfing as their state's official sport. And we're doing nothing. We need to change that. Yeah, no, that's and it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like when you when you look at the um, I guess the monetization of of even the Hawaiian religion and culture. Yeah, like I don't know how much of that money from you know selling all the tiki's and things in Waikiki and and using the grass skirts actually goes back to the Hawaiian people to get their houses built and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully they'll have a say within that advisory committee. Which I think I saw in an article that that was something that you said. I'm not sure. The all for the, the actual Native Hawaiians. Well, oh, okay. they have a say on that. So there's two other issues that I'm working on. I'm like the most Hawaiian Japanese guy you're going to meet <laughs> because I see. In addition to surfing, there are two other areas I'm chasing where, in my opinion, there's there's unique qualities about Hawaii that we're not fully taking advantage. So you touched on. Um, all of these talented artisans we have. So I'm embarking on a program called Artisans to Entrepreneurs because what I think is is a total uh, disappointment is that we have the world's best feather lay makers. We have great carvers. We have people who can make tapa uh, jewelry and, and, and clothing. And then they sell it at a craft fair or they sell it at a swap meet yeah. or they sell it at Mary Monarch with under a pitched tent. Is that the best we can do for the Hawaiians? But it's not the fault of, of them. It's just they're really great craftspeople, but there's a business side that they're not being uh, uh, welcomed into, or not welcomed into, but shown that they can turn their Saturday hobby into something that's actually something, their passion. They could actually make a living off of that. But we don't, we as a state don't put that together. We don't put together the artistic talents, whether it's performing arts, visual arts, or whatever, and how do I help monetize that? How do I help really bring that to life? And so I have that program uh, with DBED and the Hawaiian community to try and turn artisans into entrepreneurs. Another area that I think is uh, where we really don't take advantage of is hula. I mean, yeah. we, we have this idea that somehow we, we law, all laud the value of hula, all that it represents about the culture of Hawaii, but we have this mentality that people have to come to Hawaii to enjoy it. Just earlier this month or last month, we had the Merry Monarch Festival, right? You could think of it as a Super Bowl, the World Cup of, of hula, but yeah. everybody has to come here to, uh, to, to watch it and showcase it. And there's a huge amount of interest in hula. How about we have a discussion about how do we export to a, to, to a certain degree. And my vision for hula is we put it on the global level of ballet, right? Where people understand ballet, they appreciate ballet, and they're willing to 
pay for ballet on some of the most renowned stages in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's with that mentality, I'm trying to just kind of spark the discussion of how do we export hula as Hawaii's performing arts gift to the world, help the halal, you know, Re really uh, grow in in global appreciation, kind of like surfing a as well. So I just see that there's so many opportunities for us to really focus on what is uniquely special about Hawaii, and let's start exporting that, not try to be something that we're really not, and import other people's ideas and somehow make it Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. we got, we, we, our, 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 our focal point is, is a little off, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. And a lot of people um, will say that Hawaii especially in their laws, kind of just copies California a lot. <clears throat> a lot of things that happen in Hawaii is always like, oh, well, in California, they do this. And, and you know, Washington State, they do this. But, you know, um, for me, I w I'm from Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. You know, I saw you had uh, some, Go Steelers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and Rams. Nah. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I don't know. I don't look at what's going on in Pennsylvania and say, oh, they should do that in Hawaii. I don't know. I think it just has to be different and, and more Hawaii-centric with a lot of the things like you're doing and even a lot of the laws um, but if you were to export hula, how do you protect it uh, so it doesn't end up like surfing, right? Where Hawaii just kind of gets squeezed out. Mm -hmm. And like, so just, sorry, but if you had like, maybe Mary Monarch was like the pinnacle event of the year competition. If you start allowing other people from other um, halals or, did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, sorry. Uh, from the U.S., let's just say, they might squeeze out the ones that are here, yeah? And it might create some contention Right, but that's where if you create the authentic, true-to-life, deep cultural ties to hula, mm -hmm. then – because right now, one of the pushbacks is that, oh, there's people on the mainland who have – on YouTube and they create any – just do any kind, grass – I mean, have the plastic skirt and almost make fun of, of hula. And that proliferates. And so people are afraid, like, we don't want more of that happening. Right. But my argument to that is – well, then how are you going to control that? That, that, that Yahoo crazy disregard and bastardization of hula will continue. What are we going to do to stop that? The only way to stop that is to elevate people's understanding and appreciation of good, authentic hula. Then people are going to be in a discernment to realize that, you know, what you're doing over there in your little studio making fun of hula is totally unappreciated and mm -hmm. I'm not going to sign up for your class I'm going to sign up for this certified halal uh, class or however we, sh we structure it mm -hmm. uh, but um, and that's where it goes back to surfing uh, as well people say like oh we shouldn't think about uh, uh, the, 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 somehow other people have stolen that from us and, and it's wrong for them to have done that it's like we can't control it. it's it's gone yeah. so how do we control the future narrative we take ownership of it we rewrite uh, the authenticity of hula, a surfing, and then make people realize that here's the legitimate stuff. Don't go with the the crackhead way of, of, of yeah. doing hula and standing on a board and saying that you're a legitimate surfer. You're not. Yeah, no, I like that. Because if you take ownership of it and you just start telling people like, nah, this is, this, is, this is how you do it. This is the history and the background. And that's why when you're over there with your grass skirt that you made and you're kind of like doing whatever, you're kind of disrespecting an entire culture. Um, so I, I like that approach, yeah, the, the ownership approach. And it, it will take time, of course, with everything, but uh, it would be nice to see Hawaii recognized in those areas a lot more. I mean, people know, like, hula is from, they know the grass skirts. It's always attached to Hawaii. 
but it is kind of attached to Hawaii in a, I guess, more of a, a joking sense, like, oh, grass skirts and, and, and grass huts. But that's not true, you know. It's, uh, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more depth to it. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, to use a football analogy, too often in Hawaii, we play defense, right? Correct. Not, don't do this, don't do this, is wrong, 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 right? But you and I know that, you know, in a football game, playing on defense, you got to some, score some points. So let's play some offense. So mm -hmm. I'm all about playing offense, right? Let's, I'll do the other side. Uh, and if they're doing something wrong, let's score more points on them and just show them a better way uh, to really uh, enrich and cherish and celebrate what's uniquely Hawaiian. Yeah, no, I love that. That's, I like that. And then, uh, so that kind of like, <laughs> so when you're talking about the, the surfing, as being an Olympic event, I didn't know, you know, skateboarding is an Olympic event, yep. right? How is skateboarding an Olympic event before surfing? I guess they were just they the power of the X Games and things, I guess, to help push that through. That always amazes me. Um, but now, yeah, like you were saying, they have those wave pools and things. That'll be, that'll be interesting to see where that goes. And it kind of makes me think now in terms of like, it's too late now, I'm sure, but like with the new stadium that you are, are, you've been working on mm -hmm. and helping put through, uh, it's too bad times are the way they are because that would be kind of interesting if, if that if there was some way to incorporate that wave pool type thing into like a new stadium because uh, as much as I understand surfing which is very little it's not all year round in Hawaii right because the waves yep yeah so it's not too late uh, we are in discussions about uh, putting a wave pool next to Aloha Stadium because when you look at surfing one of the down reasons why it doesn't grow to be NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball status is it's unpredictable, right? And everything, mm -hmm. if you're a successful sport, it has to be TV. It has to be driven by TV. Mm -hmm. And so we know that, you know, if we buy a ticket for a UH football game, it's going to start on a Saturday night at 6 o'clock. Yeah. In the surfing world, I kind of control Mother Nature. You might have three days of no surf. And then, <laughs> you know, if you're CBS or ESPN, like you can't. Uh, yeah. you know, figure out a schedule based on that. But now, with the advent of a wave pool, we can say at 6 o'clock on a Saturday night, we're going to have the, the Aloha Stadium surf meet and they can be assured, the TV guys, that this is going to happen. So I think that's where the, the, the technology has dramatically changed the way you look at and monetize uh, surfing in the future. So uh, a surf pool is not out of the picture for being something adjacent to Aloha Stadium in the future. Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be pretty interesting. Because uh, I had always thought, too, I said, you know, Hawaii is like in the middle of everything. It's in the middle of nowhere, but it's also in the middle of everything. You got to come through Hawaii. And I always wonder, like, how come we're not holding, like, UFC, outdoor UFC events at the Aloha Stadium? How come we're not doing more of that? You know, before the pandemic, whoever was on the stadium authority was really doing a bang-up job. Bruno Mars, all these acts were coming in, and, and the stadium was, like, packed every time. Um, before that, it wasn't really much, it seemed. But then, of course, COVID hits and then kind of trickles off. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of COVID, how did that impact your legislative session? And then you, what were you thinking? Because you've been working on this stadium bill, right, and trying to get the money. Uh, what were you thinking when COVID hit and the lockdown came? And Because in my mind, I would have been like, ah, oh, you got to be kidding me. All mm -hmm. this time, all this work. And now, you, unless you knew or whatever, but I would just assume like, I don't even know if this is going to happen now. That's like your baby, right? <laughs> so well, tell us a little bit about that. Well, COVID put a pause on things, but <laughs> it actually w worked out okay because we couldn't gather anyway. So right. we would still have a 50,000-seat stadium that 
would be underutilized. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned uh, was 2019, the best year in the history of Aloha Stadium, right? You had the LA Rams versus the Cowboys. You had yeah. Bruno Mars. You had Monster Truck. You had uh, Guns N' Roses. You had Marshmallow. I mean, you had an, an array of things going on there. That was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. But to be honest, it wasn't because Aloha Stadium was awesome. It's because these promoters came. And that's mm-hmm. another problem with the setup at Aloha Stadium is that there's no marketing outreach to bring in the Taylor Swifts of the world to bring in other acts. We just kind of sit there as a the government does and waits for somebody to come here, right? In the private sector, if you and I were running that stadium, you and I, because our paycheck would depend upon acts coming in, yep. would be out there grabbing stuff all over the world. We don't do that in, in Hawaii. We wait, and just so happens in 2019, <laughs> everybody wanted to, to, to come. So now, here we are in 2020, gong, everything is shut down. Um, <laughs> and But it gave us an opportunity uh, to, in my opinion, I, I switched the discussion. Instead of saying like, oh, this is going to be the way of the world, we're never going to have mass gatherings, said that, Oh, this is a good time for us to pause, you know, and, and get people figuring out how we're going to get people back to work. And COVID, albeit detrimental and devastating, is not the way we're going to live our lives in the future. We're going right. to go back to mass gatherings where you and I can go and enjoy a concert or a football game or a rugby game or what have you in the future. So it's too bad the timing didn't work out where we had gotten this underway two years ago. Then it would have been a seamless transition. Unfortunately, now the University of Hawaii has to go spend $8 million to go build a 9,000-seat theater, uh, not theater, but stadium on, on campus. So it didn't quite work out, but uh, I think the public actually sees uh, the value of tearing down a 48-year-old rusted facility yeah. and replacing it with something that's multi-purpose. And keep in mind, the stadium right now is built only for football. And as you mentioned, our proximity makes us a pretty good place to also host soccer tournaments as well as rugby. And uh, I'm, I'm slowly warming up to the idea of rugby because, you know, rugby for most intents and purposes in the Pacific has been kind of Oceania, South Pacific, right? Fiji, New Zealand, Tonga, Samoa have great rugby teams. But the game changer recently has been Japan. Japan all of a sudden went from a know-nothing team 10 years ago to like a top-tier team. They were in the Japan. Fi- yeah, Japan was wow. in the final eight in the World Rugby Championships that happened uh, two years ago. They were like uh, one win away from being in the in the gold medal games. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so that is a game changer, <laughs> right? Because really, in, in terms of economic uh, opportunities. How many Tongans, Samoans, Fijians are we going to get to come to Hawaii? But mm-hmm. you bring one of those teams here playing against Japan, all of a sudden, a future stadium that has rugby as it, part of its uh, array of activities, all of a sudden can be utilized for just different sports. So I think we really positioned this Aloha Stadium to be even more successful than we saw in 2019 because we can bring in soccer and rugby in addition to all the other uh, events that we've showcased in the past. Yeah, and that's why when I, when I see the comments online, people are saying, "Oh, it's going to be a you know a waste of money and all this." You know, it's really just about promoting and marketing and bringing in those things and kind of diversifying the stadium itself. I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, I still think the first opening act should be you know something with the Pittsburgh Steelers, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to have you in the stands. You better bring like fifty thousand friends. <laughs> yeah. So, what is this capacity of the? the uh, it's probably going to be about thirty-five thousand. Some people will argue that it should be higher, but um, yep, what, do you, what but do you think about that? I think I'm responsible to, to the taxpayers of yeah. Hawaii. 
We build for what we need, not what we aspire for. Are we really going to build a stadium that maybe one day can hold another NFL Rams game? Mm-hmm. We don't have a franchise here, right? We're not going to guarantee to have 12 or six games a year. Are we going to build for the one-off, maybe one professional football game every five years and have this 60,000 seat stadium that for the University of Hawaii is far too cavernous yeah. for them? Right? University of Hawaii, let's, let's be real. They, they bring in 20,000 uh, fans a year. Uh, somehow, we, if we think we're going to go back to the you know, Colt Brennan glory days of 2007 <laughs> and pack that stadium, I think those days are behind us. And I don't mean to disparage the UH football fans, but that's the reality of mm. uh, I mean, UH doesn't play in a Power 5 conference, right? They, do, they don't get the TV money that the Power 5 groups do. So I think we really have to manage our expectations. And I think 35,000 is, is a good sweet spot for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then... Uh, so you say you've been working on it for 10 years. What kicked it off in the beginning? Like, what, what made you say, like, nah, this, this, the current stadium just is not going to be there. We got we to gotta start now and planning. Because imagine if, if right now, because when I went there for the Bruno Mars concert, <coughs> pardon me, Bruno Mars concert, you know, it was, it was bouncing. And they say, oh, it's made to do that. It's made to do that. But I was like, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> I don't trust it. <laughs> so I just imagine if we just started the conversation today. And in 10 years from now, does the Aloha Stadium even, is it even operational? Because hmm. I, I, I feel like it wouldn't be. So I'm just curious, like, what, what made you decide to kick that conversation off? We've been trying to fool the public for years, even before I became a, a politician, that somehow a steel structure a quarter mile from the ocean was a smart thing to do. <laughs> I mean, now we I look know. back, it's... That was such a ridiculous idea. <laughs> Who even thought about that? I mean, you look at the Roman Colosseum, right? 4,000 years old. It's because it's made out of rock and granite, yeah. right? And we're going to build, I mean, it, it, to me, it was a ludicrous sale, but good, more power to the guy who sold us <laughs> to us in 1975. Um, and then they started to rust, and then they said this thing called patina. Yeah. The green rust is supposed to make the thing stronger. Oh, it's yeah. like, what are you talking about? I mean, who in their right mind believes any of that? craziness well i would so, say the same people to allow the rail to have steel tracks but that's another conversation oh yeah we can have that conversation after this one <laughs> so uh yeah so you have this this false uh belief system that somehow a rusting stadium is a good stadium and you and i are just commonsensical like this is so ridiculous we better start <laughs> planning now 10 years ago, to start building a new stadium. And if I was able to get it going quicker than I, I did, then we would have had, we'd be talking about how great it is and glorious it is that we have a stadium instead of, okay, we're going to cross our fingers in 2024, we hope to have a new stadium. But just the, the rust, rust never stops, right? It, right. it continues to grow. It's a cancer uh, for, for steel. And so we knew this day was coming and that day came in 2020 where the stadium just unsafe and unfit for spectator sports. And then the new setup for the stadium, it's decided on yet or still? Because I, I, they show different pictures, but the one I keep seeing more common is the one with the, the road around it and then like the hotels. Yeah, so those are conceptual designs. But the reality is that later this month or next, uh, we have three finalists that we vetted through. We want to make sure that if... Whoever's going to build the new stadium has actually built one in the past, right? Not yeah. just Johnny come lately, yeah. you and I, and we're going to MacGyver this thing, right? So <laughs> uh, we got three finalists who have the financial wherewithal, have a history of building successful stadiums all across the planet. So those three are going to get to 
take a look at the RFP, the request for a proposal. They're going to come up in the next six months with their best presentation presented to the Stadium Authority Board uh, maybe January of next year. They're going to make a decision, uh, and we're hoping whoever that lucky developer is early next year, you're going to tear down the current stadium, and by this time next summer, we're going to start construction of the new stadium. Cross our fingers that in two years, we'll have a new stadium just in time for the 2024 UH football season. Yeah, I I don't I think when cuz a lot of people will compare the stadium construction to like the rail, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't understand what the rail is like. A lot of it is the underground, the wires and the sewers where the maps are off and wrong. You have to like go back and you have to move over 100 feet and things like this. Uh but with the stadium, yeah, everything's it's, you're just tearing down and, you know, upgrading, but for the most part, I feel like they should know where everything is the ground there yeah yeah but even more basic than that james is that this is not rail 2.0 the Mm -hmm. stadium is a public private partnership the problem with rail is it's a hundred percent paid for by taxpayers and a hundred percent run by bureaucrats bureaucrats who have no consciousness on what deliverables are how to cost contain how to manage a, a a project of that immensity uh so the Aloha Stadium, uh, we as a community have learned the folly of doing rail by by government committee. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to bring in private uh, sector input. Right now, the state is all in $350 million. We fully expect that the stadium that's going to be built might be somewhere in the neighborhood of $600 million, if not more. That difference in whatever the price might be is going to be borne by the uh, investor, right? Once he puts in $100, $200 million, he is going to want to see things done in a timely fashion, yeah. right? You cannot have this uh, 40-year rail system, a 40-year stadium, <laughs> and then him not being able to recoup his right. whatever investment it is. So that's where I think there's going to be a fundamentally different expectation and outcomes for the stadium versus all the troubles of the rail. And then where does the where does the private developer where are they getting the money back from? Is it like ticket sales, concessions, hotels, yep. things like this? So they will have a long-term lease on the stadium, right? The st- mm-hmm. state will continue to own it, the state will continue to operate it, but it's like the management part, the marketing that I mentioned, they bring in rugby tournaments, soccer tournaments, they get a piece of that action which will help them uh, reclaim whatever $200 million or whatever investment they make in 2020. They have a long timeline to recoup that money. But also keep in mind that the stadium itself is the crown jewel of that parcel. But there's mm-hmm. 98 acres. And I'm actually more excited about the mixed use that's going to go around the yeah. stadium. Because that's where you can have uh, shopping centers, hotels, housing, theaters, uh, you name it, wave pool, you name it, we can put that around the the stadium. And that's where I think the innovation and creativity can help us really monetize that 98 acres. Oh, yeah. And I think think in the amount of jobs that could be created too, yeah, um, would be great. Um, It's just, it's interesting though, because you're saying the stadium is, could be done by 2024? That's the hopeful projection. Ooh, we can only hope, yeah. So that means like operational, like first first game or whatever would, could possibly be 2024. Yes. Oh, I like that. And then, so in terms, so you, you, once you figure out who you're picking to develop it, and then they're about to destroy the old one, mm-hmm. is there any plans for like an Aloha, Aloha type ceremony oh, for yeah. the stadium? So there's going to be auction 
I'm going to buy two of those chairs. You oh, can buy yeah. two chairs. Um, and okay, this might be, sound crazy, but <laughs> I was telling the, the um, stadium authority folks like, wow, why don't we make this like almost fun to tear down this old uh, rusting relic? And we have like a... Uh, uh, you know the the, uh, the what do you call those big balls? The wrecking the wrecking balls. Yeah. Uh, so you get the wrecking ball, and then you and I we pay twenty bucks, and we get one swing at the stadium. Okay, and I'm out, and then you put in your twenty bucks, and you go and swing that wrecking ball, and you kind of make it, it fun um, and help bring in money. But uh, and then sell off parts of the field as well. If you could buy like a little swath of a lost stadium, you could sell that yeah. for ten bucks or whatever. But I mean, we're gonna make a little bit of money. I'm mean, not a huge am- amount of money, but you know, give people an opportunity to be a part of the past and then hopefully uh, set the tone for embracing the future of Aloha Stadium. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's super clever. I mean, even if it was like a like an auction fundraiser, you know, hey, you know, $1,000, you can go in, you can swing the wrecking ball and that money goes to, some goes to maybe the stadium, some goes to like... Um, Shriners Hospital or something like that. Ah, that's cool. That's I didn't. I never thought about that. Maybe you auction off for like a million bucks the guy to press the button or girl press the button to detonate it completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If we, yeah, if we're gonna go in the explosive route, yeah, sell that person who can be Kim Jong Un, right? Yeah. Boom! I'm gonna press the red button and boom! Goodbye stadium and oh, look, that was yeah. me. I I spent a grand to do that. They get bragging rights. They get, but yeah, I blew I blew up the uh, Aloha yeah. Stadium. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I'm excited for the for the new stadium, though. Um, I hope I hope it goes as smooth as it sounds like it might. Uh, for the new stadium itself, um, are there anything in particular that the lo- other lawmakers want to see in it? Which is like kind of maybe why it took so long. Like, what is ten years? Everyone knows you need a new stadium. What's what's really the holdup? I guess besides the money side, you know, everyone fighting over money and things. Mm-hmm. Well, there. What kind of? The, I guess I should say, what kind of roadblocks have you f- encountered along the way? The first five years was actually very mundane stuff. It was actually federal lands deeded to the city, so the federal oh. government had what's called a deed restriction to say that it would it could that land ninety eight acres could only be used for public recreation, right? And keep in mind what we just talked about was all about privatization and monetization. So mm-hmm. it didn't fit in with what the federal government was seen as allowable use of that land. So it took us five years to give the federal government fish and wildlife. We gave them 100 acres in Maui, right? Oh. So it's just an acre for acre switch. But I had to go find where that land would be <laughs> um, and make it so that it, it appeased uh, the federal government. And so the first five years was just that kind of all uh, back and forth. On where Now five years ago, we have full title. Now the real discussion begins as to what is that going to, to look like? Uh, but to your point, uh, chasing money, I mean, $350 million is not chump change, right? Yeah. So it took a little while for me to, to get uh, uh, my colleagues to see that. And, you know, as you and I know that politics is kind of provincial, right? Why would the guy in Kauai, my colleague on Maui, care about the future of Aloha Stadium? They're not going to benefit. So I have to like work with them and, you know, uh, just create a relationship as to like this is for the good of of Hawaii and uh, okay uh, I will vote for your Kauai health clinic and you know Maui you want to do water issues I'll vote for you right you, you, yeah yeah the reality is you, you you trade votes in in politics so it takes a while to like figure out okay okay how am I going to uh, get your vote got the votes and then we also had to set up the process right who's in charge it's one thing to like have the yeah. money then it's like 
okay, now who's who's going to be responsible? So we had, this past uh, year, we set up the entire process. So it's the Hawaii, uh, excuse me, the stadium authority is driving the process, the process, uh, but then there's being supported by DAGS, the Department of Accounting and General Services, as well as HCDA, the Hawaii Community Development Authority. So those two entities will be in support of uh the stadium authority, but we finally set up the mechanism as well as got the initial money to get this process going. Oh, that's three government agencies, though. <laughs> no, it take, that's why it takes 12 years, James. <laughs> yeah, you got a wheel and deal, right, for giving up somebody else's land. Hey, man, how, do you, how do you even have that conversation? Like, like can we... <laughs> You're not using this, ad. It's only a bunch of halikoa trees on here, so let's put this federal government in charge of the title for this land. And they were okay with it. I like that. I like that. So before I kind of switch up, because I know you're limited on time, is there any kind of other thing you want to touch on about like the, the new stadium or anything like that? I think it's ripe for success because it whatever you build, you have this hope that like, will the customers come, right? Mm -hmm. And I, my argument is the customers are there. You look across the street at the Arizona Memorial, yep. one of the most popular visitor attractions, 1.8 million visitors go there. They see the Arizona Memorial, they get on the bus, and then they leave. So you have a ready-made customer base. So we can create a pedestrian walkway that connects the Arizona Memorial to this new dynamic district. Oh my gosh, in addition to you and me going there, we have a ready-made flow of customers there. To me, it's ripe for success. We have a rail stop and, you know, we can argue all we want about the day when rail comes. But eventually <laughs> there's going to be uh, a transit system there that will bring people there. So I think we really have the right set of uh, circumstances to make this entire stadium district really come alive. Yeah, for sure. Especially if, and again, I don't know the pure logistics of it or anything, but if like the bike bike lanes, mm -hmm. maybe through Honolulu, Chinatown, Kalihi, up into the stadium area, if that's a feasible thing, like that'd be awesome. Even tourists, you know, getting on their Bicky bikes, if it still exists then, uh, you know, going to the stadium. Um, well, we can make it even easier. We could have affordable housing there, so you could just live there. You just drop down your elevator from your 20th floor loft, and you walk straight into the stadium. I mean, how easy can it be than that? Not even bike, just walk. Yeah, just walk there. Yeah, that's another thing, too. I didn't even touch on the affordable housing, that, you know, the potential around that. Um, I'm excited for it. I'm excited for it. And again, I know you're limited on time, right? Um, yep. Cool. Um, so I do got to touch on because it was brought to my attention the Juneteenth, uh, which is sadly is something that is just now in today's age getting light. But uh, I, I, I just want to read um, this quote. It was in the, was it bigislandnow.com? It says, as early as 1852, the kingdom of Hawaii wrote into law the following, slavery shall under no circumstances whatsoever be tolerated in the Hawaiian islands. Whenever a slave... Uh, pardon me, whenever a slave shall enter Hawaiian territory, he shall be free. No person who imports a slave or slaves into the king's dominions shall ever enjoy any civil or political rights. And that's from 1852. That, that was fascinating to me. Um, and then now, finally, <laughs> probably one of the, one of the most important um, times in, in the U.S. history, uh, is finally getting recognized. And you had a hand in getting Hawaii to pass that act, if I do understand correctly. Yep. And But going back to what you just read, I mean, the Kingdom of Hawaii, those guys were so progressive, like decades ahead of their time. So in addition to them seeing the greater good of man's uh, 
need for just happiness and, and liberty, right? That back then they brought electricity to Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, they brought uh, the telephone to Hawaii, which you know was something that even Western states at the time uh, didn't even have a, as as something that was available to them. So you know the, that time was such a progressive time, and that time was also kind of shortly before Duke Hanamoku talked about surfing. Yeah. And again, it goes back to decades. We've just kind of been sleeping at the wheel in in Hawaii. And Juneteenth is one example of that. So as you mentioned, there was more than 100 years ago when that statement was was made, you would think we would have been the, one of the first to recognize this disparity in ethnicity and treatment of, of people. But we were the 49th state in America to finally recognize the significance of Juneteenth. <laughs> um, so at least that's another embarrassing moment on our checkoff list. Yeah. But uh, even you look at same-sex marriage, right? Yeah. Hawaii was, I think, the 16th or 17th state to uh, legalize same-sex marriage. But back in two. Back in the 1990s, Hawaii was the first state that even had this issue come to bear. It was a lawsuit, Bear versus Meike, that really just started the national discussion. And then since then, 16 other states beat us to legalizing same-sex <laughs> marriage. And so Hawaii, we, we're good at uh, talking about things and you know igniting conversation and seeing the greater good. We're really terrible at chasing things that are, are progressive economically as well as socially. Yeah, because it was... I believe um, the palace here had electricity before the White House, no? Yep. And, and a telephone. And see, those are things that people just don't even know. Like, they don't even realize. Like, when people know that I live in Hawaii, you know, again, with the grass shacks and the grass skirts. But, like, no, these, they had electricity before you. You mm -hmm. know, they were calling people on the phone before you, you know. Like, um, so Hawaii just has not gotten the credit. And for whatever reason, I mean, it's even, like, uh, the legalization of marijuana, like, Everybody wants it. Other states are doing it and have done it already. There's, in my opinion, a huge um, chunk of change that we're missing out on. But again, Hawaii is just so far behind. And eventually they will legalize it. It'll probably get legalized federally before they do it here for whatever reason. But again, Hawaii behind the curve. Um, <laughs> I just don't know. I, I never understand why. Me as, <laughs> as well. Well, I understand like just on a just general economic mm -hmm. development uh, perspective, we're very risk averse in Hawaii. And we're, you know, humans by nature are creatures of habit, but we've professionalized that in Hawaii, right? We yeah. like doing the same routines tomorrow as we did yesterday. And you look at the evolution of our economy it was first, it was, you know, after the, the uh, outsiders came here, it was whaling, then it was the trade of sandalwood. Uh, a little over 100 years ago, it was uh, agriculture that brought many ethnic families to Hawaii. Then in the 1960s, commercial airlines turned it into tourism. Yeah. And so from the 1960s till now, that's been our our really economic drivers, tourism. We got to be evolving our mm -hmm. economy into different uh, areas. And we saw the folly of having uh, tourism as our only economic engine last year when it all went kaputz in one month. February of last year, whole gangbuster numbers of <laughs> tourists coming yeah. in. By the end of March of 2020, we had the worst unemployment in America. Because why? Because we put all of our eggs in the tourism basket. Yeah, and uh, my only fear is like when a lot of people talk about economic um, diversity and they start talking about bringing like tech hubs and things like that here. I mean, if you look at like San Francisco, for example, and now Texas, where all the tech companies are moving to, I mean, people are already complaining their housing costs are through the roof. The local people, 
um, can't even find houses there now. And I, could, I, I just fear what that, a, a tech industry in Hawaii might end up looking like because people are already suffering, yeah. I mean, I, probably by the end of the year, the median house price will be a million easy, yeah. What by you, next month, yeah. it'll be a million bucks. I mean, even people who are trying to buy houses here are, are still getting beat out. And uh, I know there's some entities on the mainland that are buying up houses. Um, but here, I'm not sure if we have that same problem. Uh, but it's just uh, when I look again at like San Francisco and these other places where the tech industry moves into, uh, just kind of scares me because the local people are going to get so priced out. And then the other side of it in Hawaii, they don't pay the national average for wages. It's always so low. Um, so <laughs> you know, I just, I still don't know if those jobs would keep local people here when they graduate. Like, why would you work here for, you know, a quarter of what you could make on the mainland, even if your family is here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but. So there's there's two things at play there that we as a society here in Hawaii have to get a handle on. And you're right. It's the cost, right? The cost of, of housing is crazy here, but the cost of other consumer goods, right? Whether it's milk or whether it's a car or whatever, um, we, we have to get some kind of control over the escalating costs. But at the same time, even if we get a handle on the cost, if we have the low wages that you speak of, and then let's be honest, tourism is a service-oriented, low-wage industry. Yeah. And so it, even if we were to bring down all of those costs, people would still have to have two jobs, right? Because we have to be, be able to increase their, their salary. So we have to uh, re-engineer both of these in terms of bringing down the cost of, of life in Hawaii as well as increase the quality uh, and, and, and paychecks of, of people. I will leave the housing part to other people. My because mm -hmm. my swim lane is energy, economic development, and tourism. I'm more geared uh, to how do we get uh, better quality jobs here in in the state of Hawaii, so that you can have one tech coding job or technology related job, and not have to have three part time jobs in addition to to that one job. Yeah. So it's a yeah it's a multifaceted but very complicated uh, re engineering that we have to do for our community. Yeah, and then now, um, you know, a lot of people were enraged with uh, the teleworking because Hawaii was paying people to come to Hawaii to telework. Um, what do you see, if anything, the future of, like, telework, even for, like, state workers? I know some state workers, like in my office, I work for the state, they were told you can go work at home, work at home. Um, and in terms of, like, cost savings, I see teleworking as, like, a a godsend for like state governments, local governments, because like uh, there's so many properties that we rent and we lease that if you could just condense the spaces where all these departments are utilizing and, and just get rid of those costs, I, I feel like um, that would benefit the, the state overall. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you have a hand in how, how the state handles teleworking and all that. Not a direct hand, but yeah. I mean, it's going in the right direction. I mean, even the fact that in the past, you and I would have to always stand in line for everything. Yeah. Whether we're going to try and get a building permit or a driver's license or a certification for a restaurant, now things are going online. So you don't need to have 25 people behind a plexiglass window to go and process yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right? You could send me the payment, send me your validation of whatever it is you're, you're applying for, and I'm going to email you your certificate of whatever you need, your driver's license, or, or actually mail your driver's license. But, you know, things are going the way of where people don't have to physically show up at 
in buildings yeah. anymore. So to me, it makes a lot of sense to keep people working from home and save lease payments that you mentioned. And in addition, get people off the road, right? I mean, that's yeah. one of the yeah. biggest pain points in Hawaii is traffic, <laughs> right? Whether it's a stadium or going to work, people hate traffic, right? That's yeah. a quality of life killer yeah. right there. So if I can keep people at home that off the roads, then there we go. We've enhanced the community in one little smidget there. Yeah, you get less people on the road, get the rail going so people don't have to drive. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of potential there. I just hope this, the government's and a lot of the local companies, the privately owned companies, kind of continue to embrace the telework and kind of adapt around it. I mean, a lot of these places, even like I used to work at a law firm, I mean, you really don't need to have everyone in one like big office. You could just cut so much costs, yeah? Just get a smaller space, have a few people there. I mean, in reality, you could do all the paperwork at your house, yeah? Uh, mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see the future of telework. And then I guess, um, in terms of big projects that you have in your mind for the future uh, in the stadium itself, what are the next steps that you have to do for the stadium, like you personally as a, as a senator? And then do you have any other big things that you see coming in the future? Yeah, well, legislatively, my work is done for the stadium. Mm -hmm. Now it's on the hands of uh, the stadium authority, DAGS, and HCDA to put everything in action, right? There, there's no more. Actually, I have to go chase a few million dollars more next year. <laughs> but other than chasing the money, the process is set up and I have full confidence in the three entities that I just mentioned to take the ball across the goal line. Now that that's pow, uh, my next um, area that I'm really trying to focus on is Sand Island. Uh, and, oh, nice. you know, we, we've been trying to dabble in growing a technology sector for going on 20, 25 years, and nothing's worked. We tried a tax credit. We tried to build uh, innovation centers, and nothing is really picking up speed and momentum. What I think is going to be a game changer in the future is Amazon's arrival to Hawaii. Amazon bought 15 acres of land in Sand Island. They're going mm -hmm. to create a fulfillment center there. And I'm just pinning my hopes on them because what we need in Hawaii is a big dog, right? There's no bigger name in technology than Amazon coming here. So when they set up shop here, to me, that's where it's like our anchor tenant at Ala Moana. All of a sudden, we got Nordstrom's in there. We got a Macy's mm -hmm. there. Uh, and then we can build all of the smaller stores, so to speak, around them. So that's kind of the cluster idea I, I envision for Sand Island. And the largest landowner in the entire Sand Island is the state. And you, you and I know that Sand Island is full of just kind of run-down warehouses, kind of rinky-dink walk-ups. Uh, eventually, we just tell these individuals and entities, your lease is done because we have a grander plan of creating a tech hub in that uh, area. Mm -hmm. And then I think we finally got to the point of creating the jobs that you and I talked about earlier that are high-quality, technology-oriented jobs uh, of the future. So I really am pinning my hopes on Amazon and their presence in Sand Island to revitalize the area as well as spark uh, a true, true effort to grow technology in Hawaii. Yeah, I like that. My only fear is all this this backlash that you see going on about Amazon, like uh, how they kind of how they treat their workers and the high turnover rate. I hope they understand that when they come here, we don't have that many people, so they can't just you know kind of push people out every two or three years. If you've seen these reports that are going on, you know you got to keep these workers there for a long time. You got to pay them a good wage and, and let them have uh, rights as human beings and as workers. Yeah, um, but I. I I kind of would hope that they they realize that before they come here. 
when are they projected to open that or uh, even start? I, well, I know they've just put in a kind of permits for their parcel there, and they're going to spend north of $130 million. I don't know what the timeline is, Ooh. but the fact that they put in the permits shows that they have fully intend to use that land. They're not going to let it sit uh, fallow there. Oh, yeah. But to your point about what are the workers going to get out of it, Hawaii is not a right-to-work state, right? Mm -hmm. So when they come here, if their future employees decide that they want to unionize, then they're fully able to, to do so. And you look at Costco, right? Mm -hmm. People had that fear of Costco coming to town, like, oh, they're going to just move out all the small mom and pops. They're going to just pay people minimum wage, make them work strenuous hours. And Costco has allowed their employees to unionize. And I, I don't know about you, but I've never heard anybody who works for Costco saying that they hate working for that yeah. organization. Well, they get paid good. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think we should look at Amazon's arrival with the Costco model. If they come in here and they treat people like, like crap, then there's levers we can use in Hawaii mm -hmm. to kind of force them to be uh, better citizens. But I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt and hoping that they kind of act like Costco in the way they treat their employees. Well, then it's interesting because now if we kind of go back to um, talking about the the local artisans and stuff, you know, there could be a huge opportunity for them with Amazon here to mm -hmm. kind of export their goods. Because I remember when there used to be the old international marketplace, there was always the guys carving out the tikis and the masks mm -hmm. and all those things. But you don't see those down there anymore. So maybe something like Amazon, if there could be some sort of relationship built between them and the local artisans and things like that, that would be a next level type thing I feel yeah so. no and I love your thinking because I'm going down that same route that you just mentioned mm -hmm. um, we have made in Hawaii right made in, the made in Hawaii branding mm -hmm. is so valuable but we so underutilize it in Hawaii right now the made in Hawaii branding sits in the Department of Agriculture which has no expertise on marketing which has <laughs> no money on yeah. marketing yeah. and I'm a believer that made in Hawaii doesn't mean that it has to come out of the ground, right? Made right. in Hawaii can be an aloha shirt. It can be an ukulele. It can be like a value-added product that not, not necessarily attached to agriculture. So last week when we had veto overrides, we actually overrode a governor's veto. And we're going to move the made in Hawaii branding from the Department of Agriculture to DBED, the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. <laughs> that's kind of like, I feel like that's where it should have been in the first place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, somehow, I don't understand how government works, but uh, that was before my time. I don't yeah. mean to disparage the guys before me, but no, no, fine, we're going to re rewrite uh, how the playbook is done. So we, we're we going to move it to DBIT. We fertilize it with 150 grand first to kind of get this thing going. Uh, if we actually get things moving and create the artisans into entrepreneurs, to your point, why should we, if we're going to be part of Amazon's portfolio, simply be uh, spoke in their distribution network, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to get something from California. We're going to shuttle it off either to Australia or Japan or Korea, right? That Hawaii can be more than that. Mm -hmm. If we are going to be a fulfillment center, why don't we put locally made products into those yeah, boxes sure. so yeah. that the Hawaii made mentality or, or rebranding is part of my greater vision to really fully utilize the coming of Amazon here in the future. I feel like there should be two tags. There should be made in Hawaii, which is those who are like 10% coffee, whatever, from Hawaii. But then there should be like real Hawaiian-made products, which are 100% from people here crafting and carving and making it. But that's just my opinion. No, but so we're going to have a, a certification process, mm -hmm. and we're still in the, in the uh, discussion purposes as to what that's going to look like. But, I mean, to, to have really galvanize 
the value of made in Hawaii. We cannot have a, a wooden turtle carved in the Philippines with a Hawaiian sticker on there and sell it as yeah. made in Hawaii, yeah. right? So we want to make sure that this is a, a, a truly legitimized, certified process but we have to come up with what's the criteria is 10 percent is 50 percent probably can't be a hundred percent uh like for apparel for example this we don't grow cotton right so it can't yeah. we can't uh, have apparel be a hundred percent so we have to figure out like what's that happy uh medium where we know it's an aloha shirt mm-hmm. we know we didn't get the raw materials from hawaii it may yeah. come from southeast true, asia true. but it's still a made in hawaii aloha shirt so all of those details have to be figured out but uh, yes, we are think some of us in Hawaii are thinking ahead as to how we're going to put all of these pieces together and fully take advantage of Amazon's coming here and use that as a means to spur local manufacturing. Yeah, awesome. And then, uh, okay, so I, I know you got to go, but let's just, I just want to throw this out there. Amazon, Amazon, Amazon Aloha Stadium. You know, if they want to throw a couple hundred million and donate, maybe Bezos. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, naming rights. Yeah. And uh, I'm into, like, selling whatever people will pay for. Yeah. So right now, if you go to, well, in 2019 when there were actually events there, they had the Hawaii Credit Union. I can't remember the name. There's a credit union that paid $400,000 a year, which is a paltry sum for what value they got. So keep in mind, the Dallas Cowboys uh, stated— the AT&T Stadium yeah. where the Cowboys play. AT&T paid $20 million a year to Jerry Jones for the naming rights. Wow. Wow. But wait till you hear what the Los Angeles Rams got for their stadium. They got uh, SoFi, right? A college uh, financial services entity. And they got SoFi to pay them $30 million <laughs> a year for the next 20 wow. years. So you can see how like naming rights are super valuable. Hawaii's not LA. Hawaii's not Dallas, right? We don't have the TV audience there. We don't have the professional franchise locked in. But we should be getting more than $400,000 a year when these yeah. guys are raking in tens of millions of dollars for their naming rights. Somebody's out there that wants their name on a stadium. And this is their chance. Right. Yeah. So, so you're right. If Amazon comes here or some other, there's other big dogs that are around here, um, and get them to go put their names. And they don't. Maybe they're not even in Hawaii. Maybe we just get a Fortune 500 company uh, to put their name onto that stadium. Yeah. Or it could be like the Wakai Family Stadium, right? Like. Well, then nobody's yeah. gonna go there. Maybe <laughs> maybe above a urinal could be where that uh, nameplate goes. Hey, I'm all about nameplates, selling it for <laughs> fundraising. Anywhere they can go, people right, will be- love it. Because the more I bring in through that kind of creative advertising is the less impetus for me to go dig into your pocket and tell you, James, you got to go through taxes, pay for all of these other government essentials, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer, instead of digging deeper into people's pockets, why don't we create more pockets? Right. And I just created a pocket with the future of Aloha Stadium. I love that. I love that. Awesome. Well, hey, I appreciate your time. I know you got to go pick up your wife. So I yes, won't, my big boss. <laughs> I won't hold you any longer. Um, again, Senator Glenn Wakai, I appreciate it. Um, if there's anything you'd like to close out with or anything you'd like to let the people know, other than that, we'll just uh, close it out, yeah. Yep. Thank you very much for this opportunity, James. Yeah, thank you. Aloha. Aloha.